Welcome to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope you find this podcast to be a resource that helps you grow in your faith through the study of scripture and theology. We're going to be looking at all of Hosea chapter 3, but uh, it's only five verses long. Um, I don't know why things get broken up like they do when it comes to chapter and verse, but uh, we're we're looking at Hosea chapter 3 this morning. So let's read it uh, and then we'll pray and ask for the Spirit's help as we think about this verse, this passage together. This is what Hosea writes. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought for her 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley, and I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days, You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so I will also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Most gracious and holy an eternally loving Father. I ask that you would strengthen me by your Spirit that I may preach only in His power. We ask that you would illumine our hearts and minds that we may understand and believe your Word. We ask that you would comfort us with your love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, what I hope to convince you of over the next however long it takes me to preach this sermon. I'm not going to give myself any boundaries. Um, What what I hope to, to convince you of is this, that if you belong to God in Jesus Christ, if you're His, God's action and posture toward you is always, always an action and posture of love. That's what I want to convince you. That's the sermon. God's action and posture toward his people is always one of love. That's what this passage here in Hosea 3 teaches us this morning. We we, we need to remember the context. The the Israelites have, have sinned profoundly. They have failed profoundly. They have rebelled profoundly. They have worshipped idols. They've done all the things that they weren't supposed to do. And so they're about to be exiled. And, And in the middle of all of that, we keep having these kind of gospel statements. We looked at one last week. We looked at one a few weeks ago. Here's another one. And, and it's hard to kind of understand exactly kind of how this fits in Hosea's life from kind of a, a biographical standpoint. Some people think that this is a different woman, that this isn't Gomer. Some people think that, that Gomer has kind of gone away again. And, and, and really, kind of what exactly those biographical details are doesn't particularly matter because the metaphor is what's important here. What's being pictured is what's important here. So we're not going to worry about making a case for for interpreting this one way or another. We're going to look at kind of what is meant by all of this. And and here's why it's important for us to start at the top and work to the bottom. A lot of times we, we hear 
a passage like this, and we think that the gospel part starts in verse 5. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God, and everything's going to be great, right? We think that that's where the gospel part starts. That's where they, they, they come, they return to God, they exhibit faith, and, but that's actually not where the gospel part starts at all. The gospel part starts back in verse 1. And so this is our first point. The Lord loves even though, the Lord loves his people even though we are sinners and he claims us as his own. That's where the gospel part of this verse starts. Notice what it says in verse 1. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. So she is, she is gone astray from the marriage. That's the picture here. And the husband is being told, go and love her. And then it explains kind of what this is supposed to be a picture of. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. Okay? But don't cut off that last clause. Though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Now, let's just deal with the elephant in the room. There's not a problem with fruitcake. Well, there is a problem with fruitcake. There's not an idolatry problem with fruitcake. The cakes of raisins is probably part of Canaanite worship and, and something that was brought as an offering as they worshiped these idols these other gods to whom they turned. That is probably all one kind of way of talking about their idolatry, okay? So, so notice what's happening here. We're being told that the people of God are incredible sinners, that they've not been faithful to Yahweh, that they've not worshipped him and him alone, that they've served these other gods, that they've made sacrifices to these other gods, that they've run after these other idols. That's the context. A sinful people, a whole bunch of sinners doing a whole bunch of sinful things. And what's God's posture towards them? Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, although they do these things. Do, do you see what's happening here? Israel has, has profoundly failed. I mean, you couldn't think of a way that Israel hasn't failed. But what hasn't happened is God ceasing to love them. He's not denying their sin. He's not denying their idolatry. He's, he's not denying that their, their spiritual adultery. He's not denying any of that. He's pointing to that and saying, yet I love them. Is that how we think about the exile? Is that how we think about God's discipline of his children? Yet, I love them. Is that how we think about God moving towards us? Yet, I love them. They're sinners, and I love them. It, it's really just, uh, it's mind-boggling for, for someone like me. I mean, it's absolutely astounding that this is my relationship 
to God that he loved me despite anything else. Even though, wow, I was a sinner. He loved me. Now, this is taught all throughout the Bible. Romans 5, yet while we were still sinners. 1 John 4, we love because he first loved us. John 6, 44, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. And who is it that he draws? Matthew 9, verses 10 through 13. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Isn't that incredible to think about? That when you were first loved by God was when you were dead in your sin and rejoicing in your idolatry. That's when God came and loved you. Not after you exercised some faith. Not after you proved yourself to be a good pick for the team. Not after any of that. Before any of that happened. He came to you as a sinner in love. The Lord loves us even though we are sinners and claims us as His own. Is that how you see yourself before God? There's nothing else the Israelites could have done. If anything was going to to break off God's love for them, it, it had already been done. But he still loves them. And he still moves towards them. If anything was going to break off God's love for you, it's already been done. But he loves you still. And he moves toward you in love still. The second point. In this love, the Lord disciplines us, teaching us not to sin and to love him. This is what we see in verses 2 through, really through the end of the passage. But we're just going to look at verses 2 through 4. So he, he Hosea is telling the story again, so and that's kind of what happens. It's part of the story, the metaphor, part of the story, metaphor. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without effort or household god. So, Hosea moves towards this woman and loves her and and by his love binds her to himself and I will be to you and himself to her in order to teach her his love for her and in turn to teach her how to love him. And then we're told the explanation of this metaphor that that's exactly what God is doing for us. 
or for Israel. And obviously that's where I'm going for us. For the children of Israel should dwell many days, and then all of the things are listed that they had a tendency to find their hope and security and identity in that weren't, that weren't God. They'll dwell for many days without king or prince. So there's, there's going to be no political stability for them. There's going to be no political security for them. There's going to be no political hope for them without sacrifice or pillar. Without effort or household gods, there's going to be no, no extra religious identity to which they can cling. All of it is going to be stripped away. All of it. It's the process of sanctification. But, but notice, we, we've got to keep these in the right order. Notice, this is coming after God has moved toward them in love. All of a sudden, the entire exile is a picture of God's love. It's a picture of his loving fatherly discipline that was given in order to rid them of their sin, to cleanse them. That's what's going on. It's not him refusing to love his people. It's him loving them as a good father. This needs to, to shape how we, how we think about God's discipline of us. Sometimes I have, and I suspect I'm not alone, I have a tendency to think of God's discipline for me as, uh, like uh, you know, a, a, a pet owner trying to teach their dog to, to be housebroken. And I'm not saying this is the way you should do it, but I know it happens where they, they poop on the floor and then the owner comes and gets them and like rubs their face in it and is like, no, no. As if that's going to do anything at all. But isn't that how we think of God's discipline of us sometimes? As if he takes us, he grabs a handful of hair and just bends us over and points our head, our nose right in our sin, and rubs it and goes, no! That's not how he disciplines us, y'all. That's not how our Father disciplines us. That's how Satan will deal with us and convince us or try to convince us that that's how God will deal with us. But that's not what he's doing. The, the goal of, of discipline is not shame. That's not the goal of it. When the, when the father disciplines us, he's not taking us by the ears and pointing us at our sin, going, no, you need to feel shame about this. No, that's not what he's doing at all. That's not what he's doing at all. He doesn't deny our sin, but, but, but what he does is he takes us and he says, there's Jesus. You're forgiven. Here, here on this cross is my love for you. You are forgiven. 
And yes, he takes away all the stuff that we've been relying on. But he says, here is my love in Jesus Christ, whom I sent while you were sinners, because I loved you, to come and call sinners to repentance, that you might be saved, that you might be grounded in my love. That's what God's doing when he's disciplining us. It hurts because because all the idols are, are, are being ripped away so that we can see Jesus clearly. That's what's going on. This is what we see in in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 11, that, that he disciplines us, but he does it out of love to point us to Jesus, not to our sin. This is what we see in 1 Timothy 3, or 2 Timothy 3, that this is what the word of God is good for. This is what we see in Deuteronomy 30. It's what it's all based on. Y'all, the goal of discipline isn't shame. Now, now let me make a practical point for parents real quick. And, and this is a, a point that I make not, not as one who figured this out before, like this morning, right? Just to be real clear. But if our discipline of our children, if the goal of it is them feeling shame for their sin, we're doing something wrong. It should be to move towards our kids in love. Yes, to deal with their sin. Yes, to to, to move them in the right direction. But not to rub their face in it and say no. This is what we're told in in, in Ephesians 5 with the husband and wife. Well, what's the husband's job? That, That pictures the work of Christ. It's to wash our bride with the word of God that they may be presented clean. That's what Jesus does for us. That's what the Father has sent him to do for us. Not to shame us, but to move towards us in love. That we might be cleansed. And that we might be taught to move towards him in love. And this is a lifelong process. This is the entire Christian life. Is God moving towards us in love, teaching us to move back towards him in love? Because he loves us. And he wants us to love him. Because in him is life. Think about the passage that, we, that, that Cody just read to us from John chapter 4. The woman at the well. She comes and Jesus is like living water. I mean, it's clear from the story. Jesus knows who this woman is. He knows her story. He knows her background. He knows her present activity. But what does he do? He moves towards her in love. Not shaming her, but offering her life. Say, here's living water. Drink this and live. And and yes, he doesn't overlook her sin. He deals with it, but, but he doesn't deal with it to shame her. He deals with it so that she knows this is no empty love. He knows me. He he knows my game. He knows what I'm up to. He knows what I've been up to. And still he's offering me living water. Is that the Jesus you serve? Because it's the only one there is. 
that's who our God is. The God that moves towards us constantly in love. Even when it's in discipline, it's in love. So when we face hard circumstances in life, when we go through trials and travails, when we, when we feel the struggle of life, and our tendency is to think, oh man, I've really messed up this time. Thank you. And God might be done with me. Maybe that's why I'm going through this. Is because God's finally just said, you know what, man? Look, I tried. Made you a preacher so you could talk about grace all the time. But here we are once again. I'm done. If that's how we're processing the difficulties in our life, here's what we can be sure about we're wrong. We're wrong. That's not what God's doing for his people. He's not walking away from us. He's not shaming us. He's not rubbing our face in the dung of our life yelling no. He's taking us and he's turning us toward the cross. And he's saying, I love you. And my son has paid the price for even this. Yes, I want you to not sin. But when you do, I'm not turning away from you. I'm taking you by the hand and taking you back to Jesus. Third point, verse 5. The Lord's love of us results in... It doesn't respond to, it results in our love for him. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. See, that's not where the gospel part of this passage starts. We see that now. This, this is, is the people of God's response to him moving towards them in gospel love when they're running away from him. But he's faster. And he catches us. And he catches us to overcome us with his love. And his love is so effective, so powerful, so transformative that it cleanses us and teaches us to move back to him and to call on him and to fear him and to seek him and his goodness in the latter days. What are those latter days? They're right now and they're the future. We're living in them. We're living in those days when God, by his son, coming and taking on flesh and living and dying in our place for our sin and rising again in victory over sin and death. He has moved toward us even though we pursued other gods and loved fruitcake. He moved towards us in love. 
and cleanses us of our sin and does so justly and forgives us of our sin and does so justly and teaches us by his loving fatherly discipline to love him back. We love only because he first loved us. Only for that reason. And what that means is, even in our sin, he loves us. That's your God. That's who we gather to worship. This God who is constantly and ever and without failing, moving towards us in love that we might be his. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for the joy of your love. For the baffling reality that you have moved towards us while we were sinners not in anger not to rub our face in it not to shame us not in frustration not in judgment but in love And that you discipline us, not in anger, not for shame, not to rub our face in it, not in frustration, but in love. And that your love is so powerful, so life-giving, so transformative, so comforting, so hopeful, so secure that it teaches us to love you back. Truly the gospel is all of grace and all of you coming to us through your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope this teaching has helped you grow in the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Please feel free to share this resource so that others may also be strengthened in their faith through the study of Scripture and theology.